and welcome to another episode of Behind the Decks. This is a Vent music podcast series hosted by me, Freddie Cocker. Vent, as you know by now, is a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas and start conversations. In each episode of Behind the Decks, I check in with DJs and producers from the UK and beyond. We talk all about their musical journeys, their artistry and most importantly, the person behind the decks. My special guest for this episode of Behind the Decks is Australian producer Harry Hayes. Australia is producing some of the best music in the world at the moment and I came across Harry through friend of the pod and previous BTD guest Indigo Eyes. In this episode we discuss Harry's journey into music production and dance music, how he fell in love, then out of love and then back into love with music through this journey, artist comparison culture, imposter syndrome and being in a state of music purgatory in the industry that he says he currently finds himself in at time of recording. For Harry's mental health there have been an accumulation of life events which have caused him mental health difficulties. Harry sometimes felt like an outsider in his school days and he felt a lot of anxiety for not liking stereotypically masculine activities, preferring music to sport. We discussed that anxiety, some overthinking and compulsive thinking, and why he wants clarity on his mental health state in order to move forward with his life. So get yourself comfy and have a listen as I go Behind the Decks with Harry Hayes. Harry, welcome to Behind the Decks, mate. Thank you so much for coming on and letting me check in with you all the way from Oz. When friend of the pod Joe, aka Indigo Eyes, shared one of your tracks... I was instantly hooked. I knew I had to get you on. So first off, how are you, mate? Very well, thanks. How are you? I'm good, mate. I'm good. It's been a it's been an interesting week at time of recording for me mm-hmm. with my mental health, but I'm hopefully coming out of a very scary health scare. So hopefully in the next few days, I'll be fine. But yeah, last week was not great. I'm happy to admit that. But now, fingers crossed, I'm all good. So without further ado, <laughs> are you ready to start the show? Of course. Let's do it. Let's start the pod, as we always do on Behind the Decks, mate, by talking about your music journey. But before we do that and dive right into the artist, tell me first about how your love affair with music began. What were some of your favourite records growing up, music idols, inspirations, and how old were you when you first got into producing or playing instruments? Yeah, so I think my love for music is all because of my dad, really. He's a musician himself, and he briefly worked in the industry as a touring sound engineer. But when I was very, very young, I was always exposed to music. It was, it was constantly being played around the house. And my most fond and earliest memory of music is probably in the car with my dad. And he was playing like these early Blink-182 records. And that was kind of like my first time. I was kind of like, yeah, this is really cool. I really like this song. And so I'd probably have to owe it all to my dad and to Blink-182. there's probably a few pop punk heads who are who are also credited with that story to be fair (laughs) yeah absolutely you then began to teach yourself guitar and play instruments through watching youtube tutorials which is a very gen z music education what -hmm. did you learn during this period well my dad first showed me the guitar and showed me the absolute basics and then i was like yeah yeah dad i've got it from here and just dived into youtube i first started looking up how to play like my favorite songs at the time. So 
that was anything from, as I said before, Blink-182 to Foo Fighters to Oasis. Like I just covered a whole bunch of genres and I discovered and learned that there are some great, great resources out there on YouTube for learning how to play an instrument, especially guitar. If anyone listening knows Marty Schwartz, then you know, you definitely know he's, he's a god at teaching and I owe a lot of my guitar skills to him. But yeah, I think YouTube is such an underrated, maybe it's overrated, I don't know. It's a perfectly rated source of learning anything to do with music, whether that be instrument or even production. You then discovered the music production software known as GarageBand, and you began to learn how to produce music yourself before you momentarily fell out of love with music. Yes. So tell me about this little mini blip, shall we say? The mini blip? I don't know. I think it was probably, it came when I was just, probably when I was like 12, 13, 14, you know, that typical teenage phase where I was kind of grumpy all the time and didn't, hmm. I thought music was a bit lame and all those types of things. So I think that's where the blip of interest of music came from. But as you said, GarageBand was the first software that I ever experimented with in terms of producing music. I remember very specifically, my dad bought the iPad, probably not the first one, but one of the first iPods to come out and it had GarageBand on it. And he was showing me that you could like make these electronic loops and all these crazy things to capture some sound. And I was like, oh, wow, that's really cool. Because for such a long time when I was young, I had no idea how like artists or producers were making music. I just did not understand it in the slightest. So seeing that kind of opened my eyes to, oh, this is how they do it. And then I discovered that GarageBand is also on computers and stuff like that. And I discovered that you could also record audio, which is what led me to recording my guitar and my bass guitar and kind of creating songs in that sort of realm. You spoke there earlier about your love of rock music, which your dad certainly had an influence on. But mm -hmm. three to four years ago, you fell in love with, or fell back into love, I should say, with dance music. Yes. Ironically, during the COVID-19 lockdown, which is mm -hmm. a little bit weird, but there we go. <laughs> and a new software production platform, which a lot of my producer and DJ listeners will know, called Logic Pro. So how did you fall back in love with music here, especially during such a globally dark and pretty shit period? <laughs> I think because we had so much time on our hands, I was able to just dive into Spotify and just start discovering and researching and trying to find music that I loved. And I think because I had all the time in the world to do that, it kind of just reignited my love for music again. And at the time, people were releasing really good tunes. Like a lot of my favorite songs came out in like 2020, right at the beginning of lockdown, because all the artists, they stopped touring. So they had all this free time to start writing and making music so I think that was a period where there was not a lot to do as an audience but a lot of artists were making a lot of music so we just got a massive intake of great tunes and I think just diving deep on Spotify allowed me to discover some of my favorite artists that's they still are to this day. My entry into dance music mate when I was 18 17 was early noughties garage to a degree because I kind of grew up with that in the car and stuff but largely when I in my university days it was things like the majestic casual playlist it was eating messy it was artists like Bondax, disclosure karma kid all these people before I ended up then going into house and my music education as I call it which I spent three to four years doing what artists were your specific entry into dance music itself was it EDM like a lot of people seem to do now or was it something deeper I think it was EDM because Obviously, in 2013, 2014, that was probably when I started getting into like dance music and EDM music. And at the time, that's when Flume was really, really blowing up. 
And because he's a Australian artist, a Sydney mm. artist as well, where I'm from, he was just all over the media and he was just like flume superstar from Sydney. So I was listening to a lot of his music when that was first coming out. And yeah, that, that was that definitely, scene, man. Yeah. yeah, that whole flume, scene was cool. Chet Faker, Comtrues, Wave Racer. Yeah, man. Amazing. That whole scene. Yes, Wave Racer is awesome as well. But definitely, definitely Flume was the first person in the EDM world where I was like, oh, wow, this is really cool. And then on the other hand, in the more dancey house, garagey sort of realm, I discovered Disclosure quite early on. I want to say maybe in 2014, 2015. Actually, strangely enough, because of my dad, he discovered them just randomly. I'm not sure how, but I remember him showing me a video they did in the BBC Live Lounge. And I think they were doing oh, yeah. a Lord song or they were doing a song with Sam yeah. Smith, something like that. And I was like, oh yeah. my gosh, this is so cool because they were playing like the drums live with their electronic drums and they had all the synths out. And I was like, oh my God, this is really cool. And it was house music, but it was a bit more emotional, a bit more moody. And I was like, oh, I did not know this existed. And that definitely piqued my interest in dance music especially yeah i mean settle was a pretty seminal album for me that came mm-hmm. out in 2012 or 2013 no 2011 i think and i went to university in 2012 so yeah just that that album was just bonkers bonkers level mm. big i want to talk about you as an artist now mate mm-hmm. so it was the beginning of 2022 where you took music as you said to me off air much more seriously so why did the penny drop and how would you also describe your sound for the listeners who haven't heard of you I would describe my sound as sort of fast, high tempo, garagey, four to the floor, dancey, pop inspired music that has a tinge of emotion behind it as well. It's a bit of a mixed bag of everything, to be honest, but it's definitely lives in the dance realm and has that hint of emotion and melancholy that, you know, everyone wants. So yeah, I think that's how I describe my sound. And I'm not really sure what the penny drop moment was specifically but i think music has just been all i've ever really loved in my life and has just been my peak interest for such a long time so it was kind of like inevitable i felt that i would be doing this and taking this seriously and it was just a matter of are my skills good enough yet and i think at the beginning of 2022 i sat back and went okay i think i know the basics let's just knuckle down and write some tunes and see where it takes me you, along with friend of the pod, Joe, aka Indigo Eyes, and quite a few other artists, including A-Trip, Pocket, and a few others that I probably can't think of off the top of my head, are part of this emerging scene of young producers who are very influenced by dance R&B, people like Jar Funk, who's come on the podcast, UK Garage from the mid-noughties, and also the sound that the 1975 put out on their third album, which was a brief inquiry into online relationships. And I feel like your sound is inspired by largely by two tracks on it which is Petricor and I Like America and America Likes Me which are very garagey and trap influenced so how have these scenes inspired you in the tracks you produce Harry and that album itself? I mean that album is really really responsible for a lot of like the sonic influence I have. I remember hearing those songs for the first time and being just so blown away that those types of sounds could even exist and I just had never heard anything like that before and it has definitely influenced so many producers from that point onwards, like the artists that you mentioned. So I'm heavily, heavily inspired by that album and the 1975 as a band. They're easily my probably my favorite band of all time. And I'm constantly, constantly, constantly inspired by the way they write melodies, the way they write chord progressions. They're really good at, you know, hitting some emotional nerves in you, but also making it like these this really crazy, this really cool pop sort of style. So 
I'm constantly borrowing elements from them. I was just so impressed at the blend of that pop emotion sort of stuff, you know, blended with the garagey electronic glitchiness and weirdness that you hear in that third album. So, yeah. Yeah, I always find it weird when people are like, oh, the 1975 haven't done anything to inspire other bands. I'm like, they literally have created two whole scenes. They like, created the yeah. entire alternative pop scene, which is like uh-huh. 30 plus bands in America, Australia, yes. other places. Like I could list you 10 for 15 eyes. They've directly inspired off the top of my head right now. I've interviewed mm-hmm. a couple. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And they're such a yeah. big band, but no one realizes they actually have had so much influence, more than anyone would ever, ever think. I always ask this question on Behind the Decks, mate, which is about the myths and the realities of being a producer in this scene. And to show in in my words that the superstar DJ, quote unquote, life is only really applicable to a tiny minority of producers or DJs. So tell my listeners about some of the realities you've experienced, positive or negative, that comes with working in the industry, whether it comes to work-life balance, relationships, from a mental health perspective? Well, first off, on a positive note, I feel that the music community, especially the community in the UK and Australia at the moment, are very welcoming and loving, which I wasn't sure that's how it would be, but it definitely is. And that has made me feel very confident in myself and my own abilities for all the people that I've reached out to or have reached out to me. They've all been very like, I don't know what the word is, but they've kind of welcomed me in. Yeah, very supportive. That's the word, which made me feel, as I said, quite confident in my own abilities, which has been nice, especially for me so early on in like my career and everything. However, on a more negative note, you mentioned work-life balance. That's tricky at the moment because for me, I'm a full-time uni student. I'm working three, four days a week. And then I've got this as well that I have to think about. So I'm kind of at that weird, awkward stage right now where I'm trying to balance these three things and being an artist and being obsessed with music, I'm always picking making music first. And that's not always the best thing because it gets in the way of trying to make money and trying to you know focus on my studies and stuff like that. And then another thing that I have struggled with a little bit, which I talked to you about off air, is kind of like the comparison that mm. you do. Like you're constantly comparing yourself to other artists and I find myself kind of like oh this artist was my age when they did this and I haven't done that yet so I'm a failure and I've got no time left and that's a constant thought that I have but I used to have that really bad for a while and I'm kind of getting better at dealing with that now but it still kind of creeps in every now and then and yeah it's a very very weird feeling and thought process because it doesn't make any sense because everyone's on their own path but you just can't help but look at other people and where they're at and compare yourself to it and go, well, I'm bad then or something, you know? We're going to come to that issue more in depth in a second, mate. But just when it comes Mm -hmm. to performing and producing, what impact does producing and recording or playing music have on your mental health? It has both a positive and a negative impact. It definitely helps me immensely positively. It gives me just like this zone where I'm free of thoughts and I'm just totally focused in on the music and I feel great. And especially when you write something that you're really proud of, there's no better feeling, honestly. You just feel on top of the world and you feel really happy. And it's almost like therapy, honestly. Whenever you're kind of dealing with some internal stuff, being able to turn to music and recording and producing definitely, definitely helps. And it helps me a lot because you can kind of just get lost in your own world. And it's almost like a meditative state because you're not really thinking. You're just kind of acting on impulse. On the contrary, it can have some negative impacts, but you've got to really try your best not to let it get to you because 
you know, you can write some really great stuff that you're proud of, but you can also write some absolute stinkers and that can really, really affect you negatively. And it does for me quite a bit. And it kind of like leads into that whole imposter syndrome thing that we talked about before. And when you write that dud track, it's really hard to like let go of those negative thoughts because you think, oh, I'm a one hit wonder or I can only write X amount of good songs and then the rest are terrible. So yeah, it's a weird balancing act, but I definitely think the positives outweigh the negatives. It's just about, you know, when those negative thoughts do come in, it's just about controlling them and reminding yourself of why you do it and trying to remind yourself of all the positives that come with it. And when it comes to positives, which one out of producing, writing or playing instruments has the biggest positive impact on your mental health? That sort of changed as the years have gone by. I'd definitely say when I was younger, playing instruments definitely helped me vent quite a bit, especially during high school in kind of like the harder years of my life in terms of my mental health. But as time's gone on and I've kind of found a new love for producing, I definitely think producing is my outlet in that sense. I just see it as like this huge blank canvas filled with opportunity who knows where it's going to take me when I find that really exciting and it makes me very happy and very calm so yeah definitely producing coming back to comparison culture there's a lot of mitigating factors as to why a lot of artists make it young or break through some are family networks and connections <laughs> yes yeah pure luck being in whisper it quietly industry plant or <laughs> something else entirely most listeners will never know those reasons unless it's like publicly stated in an interview or something like that. Yeah. Do yeah. you think you didn't take that into context when that was affecting you? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You think everyone that's blown up is only because they're sick and you're not. So I definitely never consider it. And it's until you dive a bit deeper that you realize, well, it's not as clean cut as they're just better than you. There are a lot of different factors that go into making or breaking an artist, you know, and a lot of it is luck. And you just have to remind yourself that, this is an industry where luck is a thing and people can kind of strike gold, but you can't let that deter you and you just got to keep writing tunes, I guess. <laughs> You've spoken about it a little bit already, mate, but the next issue you want to discuss is imposter syndrome and this self-doubt that you've experienced. So how has it impacted your mental health and what have been the tools that you've used or are developing to help you manage it? Yeah, so imposter syndrome is a big thing that I struggle with and I think it's heightened by the fact that I am quite young in comparison to some other artists in the scene. So it kind of comes when I am comparing myself to artists who did a certain thing or achieved a certain goal or hit a million streams at a certain age, at my age that I'm at, and then me going, oh my God, why haven't I done that yet? And you feel so proud of the songs that you've written and then you, you see that an artist has done way better than you at, at that age, at the same age that you are. And it just really, really plays in your mind. But the ways I sort of try and manage it is reminding myself that I've only really been doing this and been taking this seriously for six months to a year. <laughs> so nothing, mate. <laughs> it's absolutely nothing. And it's ridiculous for me to even be comparing myself to these producers who have been producing for years and years and years and years. So, you know, just trying to ground yourself in reality a little bit is something that helps me quite a bit. And just reminding yourself that it's okay and everyone has their own path laid out ahead of them and everyone hits their own goals and hits their own achievements in their own way and at their own pace because that's just how humans work and that's how life works. So, yeah, I just try to remind myself of that as much as I can and that definitely, that definitely helps. 
You also told me that connecting with artists like Joe have helped you with your imposter syndrome. Why mm -hmm. is that? I remember when Joe first reached out to me, it was such a great feeling because I hadn't really gotten any attention from anyone aside from my close friends and family in regards to my music. So he was kind of the first person outside of my inner circle and outside of Australia even that kind of recognized my music. And on top of that, the fact that he's such a established and developed artist made me feel confident in myself because I was like, oh, this guy probably has good taste in music. And if you can recognize that in me, then that's great. And, you know, we got talking. He asked me to send over some demos. I sent them over and he had nothing but positive feedback and nothing but kind words. And that really, really helped me because not only is he an artist, but he's an artist that's like in the scene that I am trying to break into and, and inspired by. So to hear that from someone that's so involved in the UK dance scene and just the dance scene in general really, really helped me think to myself, oh, okay, I'm on the right path here. I'm doing the right things. You know, someone can recognize that I write good tunes, I hope. And it definitely helped me a lot. The fact that Joe's only just recently graduated from university himself, did that help you <laughs> yeah. as well, sort of ground you in the journey? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And he's just, he's a crazy, crazy talented guy. But that definitely helped me kind of ground me in reality, for sure. The final issue that you wanted to talk about, mate, and it's something that you described as music purgatory, which you're feeling like you are in. So just unpack that for me. It's a weird one because you can kind of look at it both ways. You can look at it as an exciting thing because you're like, I'm not there yet. So it's really motivating to write songs to try and break in. So it can really motivate me sometimes, which is good. But on the other hand, it does kind of suck because you feel like you write all these songs and you just wish you could be heard by the right people and by the right ears because, you know, you think it's worth it and you think it's good enough, but because you don't have that platform yet, no one's really listening. And it's just all like, the patience. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's You've got patience well. in this industry, bro. 100%. Yeah, absolutely. And that's something yeah. I got to remind myself a lot of as well, because I am so early on and there's really no rush except for just trying to perfect your craft first before, you know, really diving in deep. So it's a weird thing being in that kind of limbo in between. Do you think that patience itself is an issue facing a lot of young artists because they get impatient and they want to break in more quickly because they see artists their age perhaps getting ahead of them in their mind absolutely i mean i'm a gen z i'm a 20 year old uni student like i'm the stereotypical person who doesn't have a lot of patience i mean i i exist in the world of tiktok and all that type of stuff so patience is limited in my generation but to be able to have patience is an important thing in this sort of industry because you don't know when things are going to work out for you. It will just come as a surprise, I think. And you can work and work and work and nothing will happen. And then all of a sudden it all falls into place or you can keep chipping away and gradually make progress. And then you've got to have patience with both of those things. So, yeah. Let's reflect now on your music journey, mate. So you're obviously not hugely far into it, but so far, what has it taught you about yourself Hmm, that's a good question. What has it taught me about myself? I guess it's taught me that that music really is my number one passion and it's all I want to be doing in life. And whether that just be producing, writing, performing, all of the above, I just know for a fact that that is just what I want to be doing for the rest of my life. It's also taught me that connecting with other people is really important 
especially when you've got that shared interest. I've got some buddies here in Sydney that I produce music with quite frequently and kind of having that community around you is, is really important. So I guess it's kind of taught me to be more open with other people and try and develop some friendships. I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm a bit stumped on that one, to be honest. <laughs> That's all right, mate. We've talked about Harry, the music producer. Let's go behind the decks and talk about your own mental health journey, Harry. So I ask all my special guests this question on this topic first. Walk me through early life, teenage years, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint? Who's the Harry we meet here? Yeah, I think my mental health journey has been interesting and it's been very, very up and down. It's never been a steady thing. I've never had... Never is, mate. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I think my earliest memory of ever noticing that I was having some sort of mental issues probably would date back to the beginning of high school. I feel like a lot of people that I know and a lot of people in general probably start to realize that mental health is a thing around that age as well. I guess going through puberty or the changes that happen in your life physically and just in your surroundings can have a toll on your mental health. But I'd definitely say early high school, the early years when I was probably 13, 14, 15, were my toughest years mentally. When you were in school, you told me that there was a series of events which accumulated to cause you mental health difficulties. And the mm -hmm. first was a period of anxiety you went through. Mm -hmm. And this was largely due to you not feeling like you fitted in within your year group and to some yep. extent, perhaps life in general. So how did this period affect your mental health when you said you felt like an outsider? Yeah, so early on in high school, it became very clear to me that I wasn't the footy lad. I wasn't the sporty lad. But I was still sort of friends with the guys that were involved in playing sport for the school. So I kind of sat on the outside because I didn't have the physical ability that they did. We still got along, but it was weird because they would kind of look at me like, why do we get along? Why are we mates? But why don't you play footy? And why aren't you built like us? And, you know, you're kind of like this lanky man and we're all kind of really big for our age for some reason and it just didn't really make any sense and that kind of you know made me question myself quite a bit because I was like why am I not like that and I think I forced myself a little bit to try and fit in with them and that kind of led to a series of anxiety and weird self-esteem issues because that wasn't me and I think I was really trying to be someone who I wasn't and that really played an effect on like my identity and my confidence and stuff like that. So yeah, for a long time in my high school years, I really did feel like an outsider, but I wasn't too far out. So it was this weird sort of like mm. in between. Purgatory um, again. Almost. Yeah, purgatory again. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It was such a weird, weird sensation. You said you also struggled to stay present during this period of your life. Unpack that for me. How did that manifest specifically? I think... In those years, I had a lot of self-doubt in all assets and there was this constant chatter going on inside my head, kind of questioning my ability for a lot of things. And when that happens, it's, it's very hard to kind of stay present and focus on what's happening in front of you. And I still do struggle with being in my head quite a bit. It's an issue that I feel like I've probably had forever. And it's something that I've gotten a lot better at managing as time has gone on. But 
to pinpoint the exact moment and why I got so in my head, I don't know if I can do that because it's just felt like a, a thing that I've had for a long time. But I, I could say that it probably stems from sort of these feelings of self-doubt and negative self-talk and then just kind of spiraling and getting so caught up mm. and stuck on those thoughts. But I've since learned to acknowledge those thoughts, let them go, don't dig deep, don't chase them down, let them exist, don't judge them and then just push them aside. What got you through that period? Was it music or something else entirely? It was definitely music. That would be the number one thing for sure, believe it or not. So I was lucky that I had something like music that I could turn to that it was like a positive outlet for me. You know, I'm, I'm lucky I didn't turn to taking drugs or excessive drinking or anything like that. So I'm, I'm lucky that I had sort of this outlet that I could go to that made me feel better, I guess. But at the same time, I feel like I've been constantly surrounded by supportive people. My parents are very supportive. So I never felt too lost in that sense. And my parents definitely helped me through kind of my darker periods of my life. They're not very judgmental people. And they were very understanding of what I was going through and stuff like that. So, yeah. One thing that you still struggle with now, mate, is compulsive thoughts and a tendency to overthink and now I don't do this podcast to self-diagnose people so just tell me about these symptoms in general and how they affected your mental health in your day-to-day life and your professional life too it can be so debilitating having those compulsive thoughts constantly in your mind it's really strange I often find myself getting so lost so lost and so deep in those compulsive thoughts that it results in me not being able to move and not being able to do the task at hand, you know, and that could be anything that could be getting out of bed. That could be hopping in the shower. It could be brushing my teeth. It could be the most simple things, but there's been many times in my life where I find myself sort of stuck in my own head, which leads to me being physically unable to move. And it's very, very hard to deal with. But I think now I've gotten a lot better at dealing with it just through my own sort of, accord I guess I don't know how I've managed to do it maybe it's kind of occurring less in my life now but I think just acknowledging that those thoughts aren't actually real has helped me quite a bit but yeah I've also considered seeking sort of professional help but I'm the typical guy that's like no no I'm fine I'm fine I'm fine which is you know not the greatest outlook but you know maybe it's about time I suss it out and see what's going on in my head (laughs) Well, that was going to be my next question. Have you thought about getting assessed for something like OCD just to get clarity on whether you have it or not? And then if you don't, you can develop some tools just to manage on a day-to-day life. And if you do, perhaps looking to prefer the professional help. Yeah, no, it's something I have been considering for a while now. I don't know why I haven't. I think sometimes I deny that I have these sort of thoughts sometimes. I'm like, no, no, I'm fine. I think it almost is like an imposter dream thing where I'm like, no, people have OCD. I don't. I'm not one of those people because I don't want to take away from the fact that these people are suffering. But then, you know, I am suffering sometimes. So I've got to be easy on myself. But if you don't know, then you won't know. Yeah, exactly. That's so true. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes I think people can think they have something and they might not. But because they don't know for sure, it might be a self-fulfilling prophecy. Whereas if mm-hmm. they actually got checked earlier, someone might say to them, actually, you don't have it. You're just overthinking a bit. And here's some tools to help you. Yes, exactly. And I'd be so willing to get that sorted out, whether that be through a diagnosis or, as you said, no, it's just this, here are some tools to deal with it, and that could give me some peace of mind. 
let this podcast be your uh, your kick up the bum, mate. To go, I think it out. so. I, it's turning out to be that way, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to tools to manage your mental health in general life and not just with these compulsive thoughts have you learned anything yet have you got any support structures in place which has helped you realize that let me think about that my girlfriend has actually helped me quite a bit through these sort of issues that i have mentally i've been very lucky to have her and another sort of tool that's helped me quite a bit is a book that i've been reading that was introduced to me through my girlfriend called the Power of Now, and it's by an mm-hmm. author called Eckhart Tolle. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. it. Yeah, it's been quoted um, a few times on this podcast, mate. It's been quoted yeah, a few times. It has, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but that book specifically has really helped me a lot because it is kind of preaching all the things that I need to hear about staying out of my head and realizing, you know, your thoughts aren't you, but your thoughts aren't real, and to be present and all those sort of things. So. Yeah, I feel like I, I constantly am, whenever I'm feeling those moments, I'm either picking up the book and reading it or I'm reminding myself of the stuff that Eckhart Tolle has said in the book to help me get through those moments. And they they really do help a lot. And I would suggest anyone that has issues with identifying themselves with their thoughts and being stuck in their own head, definitely, definitely, definitely read The Power of Now is life-changing. And a quote I always say on this podcast is, an idea is a personality. It is not a fact. That is a Jordan there Peterson we go. quote. So there, you, there go. you go. Yeah. Let's reflect on your mental health journey now, mate. So firstly, what has it taught you about yourself? It's taught me that although my mental health issues kick me to the ground real hard, I do have a bit of resilience in me. And I don't know where that comes from, but I'm very fortunate to be able to have something in me that's telling me, no, no, don't listen to that. You can push through it. And I've always found that to be the case, even in like the worst times of my life, I've managed to just get through and kind of wake myself up a little bit. And not everyone has that. So I'm very fortunate that I've kind of got the weird thing in me that gets me out of those moments. So yeah, I guess it's taught me that I can be resilient and I can kind of get myself out of those situations. And secondly, if you could go back and talk to the teenage Harry who was feeling a bit ostracized in school for not being sporty and not liking Aussie rules, mate. The <laughs> Harry who had just fallen out of love with music or the Harry who was struggling to deal with compulsive thoughts, what would you say to him knowing what you do now? I would say to him, mate, don't worry about sport. Music is so sick and it's going to take you <laughs> to some awesome places and it's going to introduce you to some awesome people and it's going to make you feel amazing and it's going to give you peace of mind and all that stuff. And everyone will think it's cool in the future. And although it seems like, you know, people kind of think you're weird for making music and liking music, a couple of years down the track, people start looking at you and going, oh, this is actually pretty sick. When you're doing gigs, they'll be asking you for guest list, mate. You'll be like, nah, mate, sorry. I'm not here for you in like 10 years, mate. Yeah, exactly. Our final topic of conversation, Harry, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests if we have time. It is a general natter and chat about our mental health. So firstly, how is your mental health, mate? At the moment, it's quite good. I don't think there's been really any obvious issues that I've been having recently in terms of my mental health. I will say the only thing that's kind of dragged me down ever so slightly is I'm kind of coming off the back end of a bit of writer's block in terms of producing music and writing music, but that happens to me every so often and 
the way I feel better about those situations is, I don't know why this happens, but it tends that whenever I have these bouts of writer's block, I always come out the other end and I just end up writing a bunch of tunes and I'm always really proud of them. So I know that my uh, time is coming in terms of writing new stuff. So yeah. Excellent, mate. What age were you when you became self-aware of your mental health and you realized that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health? Although I was sort of having these mental issues when I was 13, 14, I don't think I realized it was in my head until a bit later on. I remember when I was 13, 14, that early age, I remember these mental effects actually feeling quite physical all the time. And it felt very strange because I couldn't really identify what it was. And it wasn't until a couple of years later that I realized that these weird feelings I was getting physically were actually coming as a result of what was going on. What things do you find in life that trigger your mental health? So it could be things people say to you. It could be a sound, a sensation, being in a particular social environment, or have you not figured all of them out yet? I can't say I've figured them all out just yet. There are things that I am aware of that do trigger sort of my mental health issues. One of them being being overstimulated or feeling claustrophobic. So that could be as a result of a social setting, like a big, you know, social gathering or get together or a big party. Sometimes crowded that, lift, something like that. Yeah, crowded lift, exactly. <laughs> All those things that kind of leave you feeling claustrophobic definitely sort of trigger some anxiety within me. But I don't think I can say for sure that I figured everything out just yet. But I do know I'm aware of small things that can trigger the compulsive thoughts, stuff like that. And then conversely, what positive tools and methods do you use in your life to improve your mental health or help you feel better? Which ones have worked and maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't? So the obvious one is music. Obviously, that could be listening to music or making music or playing an instrument, whatever it is. That has helped me immensely. Actually talking about it has helped me quite a bit as well, as opposed to sort of keeping it inside you. And I think that's something that I and a lot of men in particular struggle with. So actually just getting it off your chest, as cliche as it may sound, it absolutely works. And just turn to anyone because honestly, it feels great just getting off your chest. And I often find clarity when I'm just talking about my mental health issues and I don't even need an answer sometimes. It's kind of when I'm saying how I feel out loud, I kind of have a moment where I'm like, oh, oh, okay, there's the answer there. I don't even need someone else to tell me what the problem is sometimes so just speaking your thoughts definitely helps and although we've mentioned and talked about Eckhart Tolle and being present as much as I try to be present sometimes it doesn't work and that's something I'm trying to get better at so sometimes it sounds so easy just be present you know do all these tools that he mentions to keep yourself in the present moment and sometimes I do it and it just doesn't work and that's something I'm trying to get better at. Can you tell me about the first conversation you ever had with someone about your mental health? So who was it with? What did you say? And how did you feel afterwards? Did it feel like on the one hand, a big burden or weight of lift off your shoulders? Or on the other, did it feel like something easy, insignificant and normal to do? I think the first conversation I ever had about my mental health was probably with my mum. And probably when I was about 14, 15, after me and my first girlfriend broke up. Because up until that point, nothing really bad had ever happened in my life. And that was kind of like the first thing that something like, you know, didn't go my way. And it sounds really bratty, but it was kind of true. And I was just slapped in the face with these emotions that I'd never felt before. And it was such a weird thing to navigate as somebody that had never really had some hardships before. And talking to my mom, 
helped me a lot because she kind of made it very clear to me that this is something that happens all the time and it is, it is a normal thing. And I remember her telling me about when her first boyfriend and, and her broke up and how normal it is and how it happens and how I'm so young and, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't really matter. So yeah, I think my mum helped me quite a bit and helped me realise that it is normal. If there was a mantra in life that summed up your mental health, what would it be and why? Your thoughts aren't real. I find myself saying that a lot. My thoughts aren't real. And you just got to remove yourself from them as much as possible. It's a good one, man. It's a good one. I like that. And as a final question, and this is a broad one, what more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds, all walks of life feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if, most importantly, they want to do it? It's a hard thing, but I think it just takes one person to do it in your sort of circle. And mm. that person, it's got to be you. You know, you've got to be the first person to do it because everyone else is thinking the same thing, but they're just kind of taking a step back and waiting for someone else to mention it. So if you just say something first, even if it's like the smallest thing, it will definitely kind of spark a conversation. And I found that to be the case with me and my friends. Just mentioning the smallest thing in, in regards to your mental health can lead to a much bigger conversation. And when you approach it with no feelings of taboo or anything like that, and just kind of like, you know, saying it in a relaxed manner or like a, in a comfortable setting can definitely help people open up a little bit more. And just the way you approach it, I guess. It doesn't need to be an attack. It doesn't need to be a, tell me what's going on in your brain right now. It can just be, you know, a slow thing that leads to a bigger conversation. So, yeah. Harry Hayes has been an absolutely wonderful chat. Thank you so much for coming on Behind the Decks and talking to me, mate. Thank you very much. Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of Behind the Decks. I want to say a big thank you to Harry for being my special guest on this episode's pod and letting me go Behind the Decks with him, as well as to you, the listeners, for tuning in. My favourite track of Harry's, Making Me Go Crazy, will play us out. And of course, I will put all of his streaming and social media links in the show notes. I'll sign us off by saying thank you to all the vendors who tuned in. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, please give it a share on social media. Tell your friends, tell your work colleagues about it. If you're feeling generous, write us a review and give us a five-star rating in Apple Podcasts. That'll help us out with the algorithms. If you want to support us further, you can do so by going to our Patreon. That's at www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk. Or you can make a one-off donation to our GoFundMe. Or you can buy a Vent t-shirt. Or you can buy a ticket to Just Checking In Live number four, take two, which is on Saturday the 15th of April 2023 at the Victoria Pub in Dalston. All of those links are on our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash venthelpuk. Stay tuned for the next episode of Behind the Decks. And remember, guys, it is always okay to vent. Dentro de mi corazón